All right. Good morning. That's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you, John. I know. I know. I know. Um, I know. My name's Mike, just in case. Um, the chairman of our elder board named Bob Patterson, a uh, very conservative gentleman, looked at me this morning and said, you look like a blackjack dealer. <laughs> to which I said, how do you know what a blackjack dealer looks like, Bob? So, Merry Christmas. We're so, so glad you're here. Um, I'm struggling through a bit of strep throat, so I'm going to sit down. I know, I know. Come shake hands afterwards. Um, uh, I'm going to sit down, and normally I'm kind of roaming around, but I am tired this morning. So uh, in an attempt to conserve a bit of energy, I'm going to sit down, which, you know, you don't probably care about. But it's big for me. So um, if you are new, we want to welcome you. We are very, very glad you're here. We are, are in an attempt to try to make room for all of the people that uh, are going to show up here in the next week. We're going to do this same service on uh, Tuesday twice and Wednesday twice. And so this is for you. If you're part of our church family, this is for you. So invite somebody and bring them back because you'll actually know what they're getting themselves into now. And, uh, and so check your uh, weekly for the details on when those times are. If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. This is our story. This isn't, this isn't the Hollywood story to tell. This isn't Wall Street story to tell. This is our story. And so we just want to remind ourselves of the ancient words that many of us are super familiar with. We're going to look at several different passages this morning. If you are new to the Bible... Don't worry about trying to follow along. We'll put them all on the screen. The big thing is just to kind of follow along with where we're going um, in terms of the big idea. So Matthew chapter 1, we will start in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary, and remember how old Mary? 12 or 13 tops. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So she was betrothed, she was engaged. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, knew basic biology and was faithful to the law, um, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Under Jewish law, um, if the, the woman that you're betrothed to turns up pregnant, you have every right to uh, separate in that. And you can do that very publicly and, and have her undergo the censure of the village. Or you can do that privately because he was righteous. He was doing that privately to spare her as much shame as possible. After he considered this, though, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, Yahshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew adds this all this place took all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, interesting that of all of the ways for God, and remember, this isn't a story about a good prophet revealing what God's like or a good religious teacher sharing a new way to God. This was God enfleshed. And of all the ways for God to be enfleshed, the, the, the earliest 
kind of episode we get about what this is going to look like, it, it includes scandal. This is a village of maybe 200 people. And the 12, 13-year-old betrothed virgin is now pregnant, wandering around saying, God is responsible. And Joseph, as you would well imagine, uh, is pretty skeptical. It takes divine revelation for him to say yes. But, but that God would come this way is fairly significant because it opens Jesus up to a lot of taunting and criticizing. In fact, there, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that talks about how the children of a forbidden or scandalous marriage were to be excluded from the temple. And the mysterious circumstances surrounding Jesus' fatherhood would have been included if that have, would have been proven that, that Joseph was not indeed Jesus' dad. He would have fallen under this sort of ban from the temple. As it was, though, there were just questions about this. In fact, if you remember a couple of Christmases ago, we actually looked at some of these. If you would fire up the iPad for me, I want to just remind you of, uh, of how interesting it is that God would come this way. So here he is teaching in the, in the synagogue. Many who heard him teach were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they ask? What's this wisdom that's been given to this Jesus? What are these remarkable mir- miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this... And then what's it say? Mary's son. Now, if you remember, back in those days, you were always and forever the son of your father, even if your father had died. In a patriarchal culture, it was the, your bloodline was through your dad, always. This doesn't sound like much to us to say, isn't that Mary's son? But you'd only say that if you weren't sure who the father was. Okay, so this sort of scandal follows Jesus around. His brothers don't believe in him. I mean, try claiming to be Messiah in your family. So we read this in John 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, and this is a taunt, by the way, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, Jesus, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. So, in other words, why are you up here in all the villages and farms? Why not go down to the urban centers? Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then we read this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. I just find it interesting that when God takes on flesh, his own family doesn't buy it. Jesus, later in the book of John, is, is in a dispute with some of the Jewish leaders. And it's, it's a very complicated dispute. But notice, twice, they bring up his parents. He says, Jesus, this is Jesus talking. He says to the Jewish leaders, In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one witness for myself, and my other witness is the Father. Now, he means God the Father who sent me. But the Jewish leaders asked, Where is your Father? In other words, we're not quite sure who that is. Or later, later in that same chapter, um, the, the Jews are saying, hey, Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus replies, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not what? illegitimate children they protested the only father we have is God himself now I I just draw your attention to this some of you may remember this 
I draw your attention to it because I find it so interesting that when God takes on flesh, instead of coming in a way that would have been obvious to everybody, he comes in a way that's hidden. And not only hidden, but he comes surrounded by a bit of scandal, so much so that people are reminding him of this as he goes throughout his ministry. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 4. I want to look at what it meant to say that Jesus came in the flesh, that God is with us. What did that cost exactly? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, the adult Jesus, was led by the Spirit into the, into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So evidently, God taking on human flesh meant he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tempted. Flip over, if you would, to chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, again, these will all be up on the screen if you're having a hard time following along. Verse 22. Then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David, the one that was promised that would come from David's line, in other words? But the Pharisees, these were some of the most religious folks in ancient Israel, when the Pharisees heard this, they said it's only by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. In other words, they accused Jesus of being in league with the very devil he was warring against. So when God takes on human flesh, some were so hard-hearted that rather than believe that God was at work in Jesus, they'd rather just give credit to the devil for the works that were happening. Flip over to chapter 26. Nope, 13 is what I said. Chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse uh, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his what? Verse 54. His hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue. They were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get these things? And then notice 57. And they what? They took offense at him. In Luke's account of this, remember? They tried to throw him off a cliff. They were so offended. Now, I just find it interesting that of all the ways God could visit planet Earth, this is the story we're given scorn, betrayal, unbelief, right? Taunting, mocking. Go if you would to chapter 26. The gospel stories about Jesus, they go relatively quickly until you hit the last week of Jesus' life. And then they they very much slow down and take their time. So verse 14 of Matthew 26. Jesus had a crew probably of over 100 disciples or so, but he had an inner circle of 12 And these 12 were the ones that had kind of been with him from the beginning. And one of them, named Judas, verse 14, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to betray him, to hand him over. Now, now, evidently, when God became flesh, he was betrayed. Go, if you would, to verse 33 of that same chapter. Jesus is teaching his followers about the fact that he has to go and die. And Peter says, verse 33, even if all of of your other followers fall away, I will never fall away. 
Jesus replies, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So evidently when God took on flesh, he was denied. Jump down to verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place, place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. These are three guys from the twelve. Along with him, and he began to be what? Sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't even know how sorrowful that is. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet not as I want, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them what? Sleeping. So they just had a meal with wine. Evidently, that that was all it took. So while Jesus is in agony and lonely, they're sleeping. Verse 47 While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Verse 50, then the men stepped forward to seize Jesus and arrested him. He gets taken before a group, a Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. Verse 59, the chief priests and, and The whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That would have been highly offensive. The high priest, verse 64, finally says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replies, from this incredible messianic passage in Daniel 7. Notice verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes and said, Jesus has spoken blasphemy. We do not need any more witnesses. Look, now that you've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? He is worthy of death, the council answered. So they spit on his face, they struck him with their fists, they slapped him, they mocked him, said, prophesy, Messiah, tell us who hit you. Jesus gets taken before a man named Pilate. Verse 26, Pilate has to choose between releasing Jesus or another prisoner. The crowd wants the other prisoner released, so it says he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Then Pilate's soldiers, Pilate was the Roman official, took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. They led him away to be crucified. So this is the Christmas story. It's not just a sweet little manger scene. God with us means Jesus is tempted, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's scorned, he's blasphemed, rejected, questioned, overwhelmed, sorrowful, arrested, betrayed, deserted, denied, spit on, struck in the face, slapped, mocked, stripped naked, insulted, beaten, lied about, falsely accused, convicted, condemned, crucified, humiliated, scorned, pierced, bruised, rejected, hated, stared at, left in, pub- left in public, naked to die, and ultimately executed. That's the story we're given. It's not just a nice little peaceful thing in Bethlehem that we've got going here. Now, what's so interesting to me 
is why is it that God came this way? I mean, you'd think he could just show up, wave to everybody, march right to the cross, have it end in a second, and he's died for the sins of the world. Why all of that? Go if you would to the book of Hebrews. Just a couple of points here. You're doing very, very well. Either you're stunned by my vest or you're bored out of your mind. Um, Hebrews chapter 2. Now, this writer is describing why it is that Jesus came the way that he did. Why he came in flesh and blood. Because remember, the claim isn't Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was a nice religious leader. This was like, of all the ways that God himself could show up in the earth, This is how he did it. So the question is why? Well, here's one answer. Verse 17, Hebrews 2. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way. That in order that he might become a what? Merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of God. Of the people. Now listen to this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or in chapter 4, don't turn there, I'll just read it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. In other words, two of the most powerful words that human beings can say to each other are the words, me too. If you've ever undergone something horrifying, one of the first things you learn to do is to find people who've survived it, right? So if you're a cancer, if you're in the midst of cancer, you, you, you hang out with people who've been through cancer, right? There's, there's something that you can know about it intellectually, you can read about it online, but there's something having walked it and the chemo and the radiation, there's, some, there's something only another cancer survivor can say. When you're, when you're just so anxious and feeling so sick, right? Everyone else can wish you well and tell you it's going to be fine. But when those words come from somebody who's been there, they mean more. My wife and I have a beautiful uh, son who has some special needs. We'd had a particularly rough day with him Monday. And um, Monday night was something, a little service we called Blue Christmas. It was actually a lament service. It was a service to just feel sorrow, because it's not always merry. It turned out to be very appropriate that we had that service that night, as we were just sort of lamenting and grieving a reality we wish sometimes were different. My wife is wonderful, and she came home, she posted online um, in this Facebook page for parents of uh, children with Down syndrome. She just said, you know, it's, it's tough. And she lamented and was immediately flooded with other parents of special needs kids saying, me too, us too, we know, you'll make it, we've been there, I remember those days, right? There's something so powerful about that. Christmas is cosmic solidarity with the human race. Christmas is God's ability to say to those of you who've been betrayed, I know. Those of you who've been abandoned, I know. 
Those of you who, who have been mocked, who have been scorned, your family has alienated you, you've, you've been lied about, you've been falsely accused. I mean, whatever it is, you've been abused by no, You did nothing wrong and they were abusing you. See, Christmas robs us of our ability to shake our fist at God Almighty and say, you don't get it. Christmas says, no, I get it. I mean, that's what it means to say that Jesus is merciful and a sympathetic high priest. Now, He was like us in every way, not sinning, thankfully, but in every other way, hungry and thirsty, disappointed and angry, sad and frustrated, the whole thing. And so, brothers and sisters, the Christmas story isn't just for those of us who love to sing Silent Night, Holy Night. The Christmas story, the Christmas story is for any one of you who are here today under a heavy load. Because what love does, according to the Christmas story, is love doesn't walk away. Love doesn't leave us alone. Love doesn't look at us and say, hey, it's your mess, you fix it. Love dives in. Jesus, for the joy set before him, took on flesh, knowing this would be what it cost. Not just a moment of death, but a lifetime of experiencing every bit of fallenness the world has to offer, correct? Now, he comes not just to sympathize. He comes to save. Go, if you would, to 1 John. Just a couple more passages. He comes to save. 1 John 3, verse 16. He comes to sympathize, yes. He comes to save. 1 John 3, 16. Kids, how you doing? You all right? Okay. That's what I'm talking about. I like that you're in here. If it helps to picture me with square pants, that is totally, totally fine. Sort of sponge. That helps. 1 John 3, (coughs) verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There it is. Or or chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, mistakes, and failures. In other words, the Christmas story isn't just about God coming and taking upon the full force of fallenness. Although that's beautiful. And for those of us who need a Me Too this morning, our God is a God that understands. Our God is a God who, when God says it's going to be okay, understands the agony of waiting. But this God also comes to redeem. In other words, to rescue. He dives into our hell to show us what God is like. The manger, the wood of the manger, and the wood of the cross are the two clearest declarations of what love actually is. The clearest demonstration that God will do anything to redeem you, to rescue you, to pursue you until you yield to Him. God is not up there angry. God is not up there hateful. God is not up there disappointed. God is relentless in His great love. And for proof, we sing. For proof, proof, we read. And for, for proof, if I can speak English words, for proof, Jesus has put forward the most important image of God that should be in your mind is Jesus of Nazareth being crucified. 
That's what love is. Love isn't sentimentality. Love isn't good feelings. Love isn't warm wishes. Love is God Himself before we got our act together, before we got cleaned up, before we got our our questions answered. God Himself took flesh upon us, dove into our personal hell to show us how much He loved us. And we can appreciate to a small degree what that's like, right? I mean, if my wife were trapped in a burning building, would I go in and get her? Oh my goodness, yes, of course. Even if people were warning me, don't get her. I don't know why they would. I'd go at great risk, right? I wouldn't even think about it. My kids, I'd go. What if my kids were in that house, even though I'd explicitly warned them not to be in there, would I still go? Of course she'd go. What if my wife, this would never happen, What if my wife was in another house because she was meeting someone else there romantically? Would I still go? I would. If frail human beings can approximate a faint echo of sacrificial love, how much more than the God who defines it? If we can understand, even in the midst of disobedience or betrayal or rebellion, love would drive us towards the mess, not away from it. Then how is it that we could shake our fist at God and say, you don't love us. Show yourself. Prove yourself. He has. He does. And He will. And this is a day... We have loads of folks who need to be reminded of the good news of this great love. That of all the images you have of what God's like, Jesus in a manger and Jesus hanging on a cross should be the predominant ones. Why? Because they show God's heart for you and for me. There is no qualification. There is no doubt. There is no second guessing. There wasn't wasn't anything other than for the joy sent before him, Jesus said yes. So I would imagine there are a few of us here carrying heavy loads, full of sorrow and disappointment, feeling abandoned or betrayed. Our God is a God that says, me too. And I would imagine there are a few of us, screw-ups, misfits, outcasts, pretty royal sinners, who could be at times tempted to think that if God really knew what I was doing, thinking, feeling, acting, breathing, He wouldn't be so fond of me. The manger says, me too. The cross says, he'll go to any length to redeem us. He's not horrified. He's not scandalized. He took it upon himself. And he will pursue you until your last breath. And so this morning, we simply just invite anybody, whether you've followed Jesus for 50 years or for five minutes, to say yes again to his great love. We invite everybody to say yes to him. Not because out of religious obligation or duty or guilt or fear. But because I remember the moment when I got tired of running from him. And I just sort of collapsed and said, okay. (laughs) And he is so great, he'll even work with that. And so this morning, after the service, we're going to have just some folks over here to my left. They're called the I Believe team. 
And that just means they're here if you have questions, if you want to talk, if you want to pray with somebody this morning, they're going to be here for you. If you'd love to follow Jesus, I can't encourage you strongly enough to do that. Because we believe ultimately love took on flesh and blood and love understands. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray for you, pray for your kids. We're going to continue to sing, to worship. Father, would you give us the courage to lay down our petty and small images of what you're really like? And would you give us the grace to actually believe that you're this good and beautiful? And Father, for those of us that believe we've got to somehow make it up to you and perform all these good religious things, or perhaps we believe we've fallen too far, we've blown it too much, Father, would you shatter those false images by the power of your Holy Spirit? And would you woo us to you? In our boredom, in our agony, in our disappointment, in our fear, wherever we are, Father, would you come and would you woo us? Would you fill the ache? Would you remind us of your goodness and grace? Would you help us to remember what is so easily forgotten? And so Jesus, please, be pleased this morning to walk among your people very, very tangibly, bringing comfort and grace. In your name we pray, amen.